Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, the uh, scripture is also in the bulletin, and it'll be on the screen in just a few minutes. We're going to continue our series entitled Resolved, and we're looking at Jesus's journey to the cross from Luke's perspective, beginning in Luke 9.51, where he says that Jesus set his face uh, to go to Jerusalem. He was resolved, he was determined to see uh, through the job that his father had given him, which was to uh, pay for your sins and my sins and to provide for us salvation. But along the way, Jesus was also resolved to teach us a variety of things. And so we're, we're kind of coming and sitting in those lessons and uh, hopefully learning from the Lord. And we're going to do that again this morning, Luke 16. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to just go down a side road for a second. I'd like to just take a moment of silent prayer. I'd like for us to pray for the families of the shooting victims in Florida. Uh, I can't imagine what those parents and brothers and sisters and, and friends are going through this morning, but it has to be absolutely awful. Uh, also praying for the, this young man whose soul was so dark that he made the choices that he made, uh, that God would speak into his life. So I think it's appropriate for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for those folks, even though we may not know them. Uh, and then I'll close this time in prayer and we'll, uh, we'll get on with our lesson. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those who are in great pain emotionally and spiritually this morning, who are grieving the loss of a loved one uh, so unexpectedly and so tragically. Father, we pray that you would be very real to them, that you would provide comfort, that you would provide grace. Father, we, we pray for this, uh, this young man who uh, apparently took these folks' lives, that you would speak into his heart that the, uh, the anger, the pain, whatever it was that led him to do what he did, Father, you can, you can conquer all of that. Uh, Lord, we know we live in a broken world, but it's in moments like this where it just it kind of slaps us in the face. And so we, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. Uh, and in the meantime, we pray that you would make us your faithful witnesses uh, to the end that people would know uh, you uh, as Savior and Lord. But Lord, just our hearts this morning are, are poured out for these folks and pray that you would you would draw near to them and, and draw them near to yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, have you ever had an experience where looks were deceiving? Maybe something looked good in an advertisement and then it turned out to be not so great when you actually saw it uh, close up. You know, if you've ever uh, seen commercials for, you know, that juicy, wonderful, loving hamburger, I think that might be a Big Mac. We're not picking on McDonald's this morning, but maybe, you know, you've seen that and you've said, well, I'm going to go to the drive-thru right now and I just can't wait to have one of those. And then you get it and it, and it maybe doesn't quite live up to, uh, to what you expected. Uh, we're going to look at a lesson out of Jesus's life where uh, Jesus confronts some people who are trying to look a certain way. They're trying to project a certain image, but Jesus looks behind the, the facade. He looks behind the, the curtain of their lives, so to speak. He looks behind the things that they're holding up that, that they're pretending, actually. And he says, you're, you're not who you think you are, and God's grace is for you, and you, you need to, to listen to this somber warning that I'm going to give you. So we want to uh, listen ourselves 
uh, and hear the message that Jesus has for us this morning, because I certainly am not above uh, playing Christian sometimes when I don't really feel like it, and then pretending to be maybe holier than I actually am. And so perhaps that is a, a challenge for you as well. So Luke chapter 16, we're going to read verses 13 through 15, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Hear the Word of God. Jesus' teaching, and he sums up uh, one of his lessons by saying this, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will love, excuse me, hate the one and, be, and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's skip over to verse 19 where Jesus uh, brings this teaching home with an illustrative story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you... In your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now for hearts and minds to hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Lord, I know you have an application for each one of us, uh, and those applications will vary from person to person. Lord, I also know that I don't have the ability to uh, help everyone understand that and to apply it to their lives. Only you can do that. So, Lord, it's good that we don't come here to, to listen to me, but rather that we come to hear the Word of God and to ask you to uh, teach us, to instruct us, to correct us, to discipline us, to, to nurture us, to cherish us. All those things that you promise your word will do in our lives. We pray for those things this morning. And help us to be open. Lord, this is a difficult text. This makes us uncomfortable whether we want to freely admit that or not. I'm talking about a couple of subjects, the love of money and, and eternal punishment. And those are hard things. So Lord, we pray that you would help us see your purposes and your good character in all of this. Please forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've, uh, as we've said, Jesus has resolved 
to, uh, to do certain things. And where we're looking this morning is his resolve to help us understand what we truly believe and that that leads to how we live. So I, as I believe, as I, as I think, as I think these are my priorities, this is what's most important to me, my life, actions, words, deeds come out of that. Jesus wants us to understand that, both of which, both what we, uh, what we believe and how we live, have temporal and eternal consequences. So this is a message not only for the here and now, but it's also a message for the life to come. I have four observations in this text, so let's get right to it. The first is that Jesus offers a lesson, and the lesson is pretty straightforward and pretty succinct. In verse 13, Jesus is wrapping up a longer conversation, and he sums it up very directly and very you know easy for us to get our minds around. He says, no uh, servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The, the lesson here is that divided loyalty, when it comes to the core of your being, is an impossibility. You can have a little divided loyalty over, uh, you know, maybe which team you cheer for, depending on who makes the playoffs. You know, if the Cardinals aren't in this year, who are we going to play for? You know, who are we going to cheer for? You know, little surface things like that, but when it comes to the core of our lives, but it comes to, to who we really are. Divided loyalties are an impossibility, right? Because we're going to choose a life's foundation. We're going to choose a philosophy. We're going to choose a worldview, whatever language you want to put to it. And we will pick one and everything will flow from that choice. Who I am and in, in, in my inner heart will come out in the way in which I live my life. So Jesus says you can't serve you can't be devoted to both God and money. They, they, those two things are simply in, incompatible. Have you ever tried to, to on a ser- more serious issue, kind of live you know, one foot in this camp and one foot in that camp? It just isn't possible. When I was in high school, and this is going back to 1977, this is going way back, uh, when, if you had to have your wisdom teeth taken out, and I had to have my wisdom teeth taken out my senior year, you actually had to go in the hospital and stay overnight. You couldn't just go and do the outpatient deal that they've probably been doing now for 20 years. So in April of, of my senior year, I go into the hospital to get my wisdom teeth taken out. Now, a couple things you also need to know. One is that Cindy and I are dating at that time. My, my bride now of 36 years, we were, we, were, we were dating in high school. And at the end of our senior year, her mom was going to move back to Colorado Springs, where they had initially been from. And so Cindy was not going to be in St. Louis for the summer before our freshman year of college. She was going to move back to Colorado Springs to be with her mom. And I might have accidentally, not on purpose, just maybe... I'm not even sure how it happened. I might have said to another girl, my girlfriend's going to be gone this summer and maybe you and I could hang out together. Now, I'm sure I had wonderful motives. Uh, and, and no, we're not going to call Cindy Ford to tell you the true story. But I did that. I said, that, I said, hey, my girlfriend, but she's going. Maybe you and I can hang out. And she's like, oh, that'd be great. So imagine my surprise and my delight when I woke up from my surgery and I'm lying in the bed and I open my eyes, I look and, and oh, there's Cindy. That's so sweet that she's here. And then I look over there and there's the other girl. <laughs> and they've been talking to each other. And I needed more dental work after that experience. And true story, according to Cindy, I didn't hear it because I was passed out. The other girl said, oh, you're the girlfriend that's leaving town when Tom and I can start spending time together. So yeah, that didn't, that didn't go over real well. So I did what any mature man would do who put himself in that spot. I just closed my eyes back up and pretended to still be asleep. (laughs) 
you can't serve two masters. You, you, you can't have two girlfriends. It doesn't work that way. When you get to the important pieces of your life, when you get to your inner core of who you are, Jesus is very clear in this lesson. We may think we can love God and love our wealth. We may think we can love God and love our power and our prestige. We th- may think we can love God and hold on to our possessions tightly, but it simply isn't true. Choice matters. And that's the lesson. But what about the audience? That's our second observation of four in this text. With whom was Jesus speaking? Now, clearly, he's speaking to you and me because we're here this morning sitting under his teaching. But who is the original audience? Well, in verses 14 and 15, we meet these folks. The Pharisees, the the real super religious people of the day, right? Who we find out are actually lovers of money and servants of money, right? Heard all these things. And they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus is talking to a group of people who who have made the love of money their highest pursuit in life. Now they've made this choice in the depths of their heart. And they're pursuing it. to to the degree to which they are able, but they're pretending to be something very different. They're pretending to be people who put God first. They're pretending to be the people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And and they fooled a lot of folks, right? You are those who justify yourselves before men. So they're pretending to be somebody they're not. Have you ever done this? And and I I guess it's wrong. I don't know, but I, I do this sometimes. If you're walking into a polling place and you're going to vote, and maybe you go, like, I try to go, like, I pick a time when I don't think there are going to be a lot of people there, and I, I don't have to stand in line. So, like, like 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'll go there, and it happens every time I go. There's one person standing out there on the sidewalk with their big button on, their big sign, and they're for the other guy, <laughs> right? Or they're for a cause that I'm, I'm not voting for, right? But it's just me and them. And they make eye contact with me. And they smile at me. And they look at me hopefully, and I just give in and say, hey, hope you win, and keep on moving, right? Now, the facts are, most of the time, I don't hope they win, but I get, so I guess that's the sin of lying, but I'm just too big of a coward, right? I want to appear other than I am, and the Pharisees want to appear other than they are. They want to not only fool other folks, but probably in the depths of their heart, they want to fool themselves, and yet Jesus says, you're lovers of money. And, and when he says this, they think he's a fool, right? They ridiculed him. They mocked him for having that opinion. That's how deeply they were possessed by the love of money. They had no room in their heart or mind to think that perhaps they were in error. They appeared to be enthusiastically religious to men. But what does Jesus say? But God knows your hearts. They assumed that they enjoyed God's blessing. But what does Jesus say? What is exalted by men is an abomination in the sight of God. They were sorely mistaken. So Jesus teaches this lesson to a group of people that desperately need to hear it, but don't necessarily want the truth. And so he presses the matter a bit. And in verse 19, we find Jesus reinforcing the lesson with an example. He tells a story. And the story is primarily about two people, a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Now, there are other folks that kind of come into the story, Father Abraham, but primarily we want to look at the rich man and at Lazarus. In verse 19, it says this, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and finely linen and who feasted sumptuously, that's a great word, sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from the, what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What do we see in this the verse about the rich man? He was fabulously wealthy. He had an extravagant lifestyle. He, he denied himself nothing at all. Uh, I was, I was uh, watching, I don't know, I might have been the Olympics the other day, and I'm getting ready to, to uh, leave on March the 1st, and I'm going to be out with Katie for a couple of weeks in Hawaii, and I'm flying commercial, and I'm flying like, you know, the kind of the regular, the regular seats in, in commercial. Um, I think I paid a little money to get like a little more leg room, but I'm, I'm you know, basically with, with all the other poor slobs that are back there in the, in the back of the plane, right? But I see this commercial for um, uh, a private jet, not to buy a private jet, but like to just rent one to go for a ride in it, right? So I thought, what? why not? So I called and I say, I'm in St. Louis and I'm going to visit my daughter in, in Hawaii. Uh, I'd like the, you know, a ride out and a ride back, okay? And they do some figure and they give me the answer. Does anybody, could you loan me $80,000? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out and back to Hawaii. 80, now it was a nice jet. It wasn't a prop plane. It was a nice jet, right? And there were snacks included. So I think it's probably well, well worth it. But I, I, I kind of like, Stacey, you're just, I kind of couldn't breathe. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And yet there are people that wouldn't blink an eye at that. There, there are tons of people that could go get that jet and fly to Hawaii. And if you're one of them and you're going, I'd be happy to tag along. But here's the point. That's the rich man. He, w- he was extraordinarily wealthy. And he, and he lived in a way that celebrated that with just him. He made himself right? He denied himself nothing. He, he made sure that his life was most comfortable while ignoring severe poverty and brokenness right under his nose. At his gate laid a poor man whose name was Lazarus. That means if I'm walking out the gate of the door, I'm the rich guy, Lazarus is right there. It's like he's 30 yards over there and I can't see him. I might have to actually step over him to go out of my house. It's right in front of him. Not only that, but this passage says that, that the rich man was so selfish that Lazarus desired to be fed with the crumbs that fell from his table, but it doesn't say that he did, which means that, that the guy basically wouldn't give him a penny. That's how selfish he was. That's how self-centered he was, right? He truly believed that his comfort was the most important thing in the world, and therefore that's how he lived, which means he lived with no faith in or love for God. Now you, now you say, Tom, wait a minute. It doesn't say that in the, in the story. It doesn't say he didn't love God. But let me perhaps introduce you or remind you of a principle when you're studying Scripture, and that's this. Scripture defines Scripture, Right? We study scripture to understand what other scriptures say because you can't find a section in the Bible like this story that doesn't say everything that's in the Bible. So we need to use other scripture to understand this scripture to interpret it. So I will take you now to James chapter 2. And James was a brother of Jesus and also a disciple of Jesus, and he wrote this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And the notion there is, is kind of charity and, and graciousness and, and kindness towards others. Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What James is doing is if you apply the lens of James to this story, what you see is a man 
without faith. A man who is living for just this world and just this comfort. What about Lazarus in this example? What about our other main character? In verses 20 and 21, Gate laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. He desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What's ironic about this particular story, and I'm sure Jesus was very intentional on this, the name Lazarus itself means God has provided. So on the surface, it would seem that even his name was a mockery to the notion of God's provision. This is a person who was truly and completely destitute. His poverty knew no limits. Uh, He had no escape from that poverty. Clearly, if he's lying at Lazarus's door, he has no family to take care of him because if he had some family, they would at least be providing uh, some small amount of of meals or care on some level. Uh, And he has no uh, help with his illness. He's probably sick because he's malnourished and probably his sores are stemming from the fact that he can't get up and he can't go to work. And it's just kind of an unending cycle that continues to spiral downward, downward to the point where he only, his only help are the neighborhood dogs who have more grace and compassion than the rich man. And they do what they can do by licking his sores. Lazarus is truly a person that is in a deplorable condition and more than likely through no fault of his own. He simply uh, was in a spot where he could not help himself and had no one to help him. And yet we know implicitly in this story that he was a man of faith, that he actually believed in the promises of God, that he actually trusted in the promises of God. So how on earth do you know that? Because it doesn't say that in the text. Well, it does implicitly in verse 22. The poor man died, right? and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, right? He was taken to heaven. You don't get into heaven without faith. You don't get into heaven by good works. You don't get into heaven by being better than other people. You don't get into heaven because you went to church. Scripture is abundantly clear how you gain a right relationship with God. I'll take you to Hebrews chapter 11 and add this to the equation. So not only do we know in the story that he was taken to heaven, plus this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, him being God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, those who come to him by faith, right? And he will reward that faith. What's the reward for faith? Eternal life through the Lord Jesus in heaven. So you take those two things, plus look at Abraham himself. Abram believed the Lord, according to Genesis 15, 6, and God counted it to him as righteousness, as right standing with him. So when Abraham said, Lord, I trust you. I believe the promises you're giving me by faith because I don't see them, but I believe them. God says, that's how you and I are in right relationship with faith. Every time Jesus heals a person, almost every time exclusively, when Jesus heals someone, he says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You cannot underestimate the importance of faith in your relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's why the author talks about it as a gift of God, right? We're saved by grace through faith, and this faith is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So the notion here about Lazarus is that he is a man of deep faith. He's poor, he's broken, he's sick, but he truly believed and he lived out of that faith. Brendan Manning, I think, speaks, uh, speaks well to this topic when he said this, the dominant characteristic of an authentic spiritual life is the gratitude that flows from trust, not only from all the gifts that I receive from God, but gratitude for all the suffering. Because in that purifying experience, suffering 
has often been the shortest pathway to intimacy with God. What do you suppose you do if you're completely destitute and, and you have failing health continually and you're lying besides a very wealthy home hoping to get something but nobody ever gives you anything? What do you do with your spare time? Which is about probably 20 hours a day because you can probably only sleep about four hours a day. I would imagine you get intimate with your Lord if you're a person of faith. I imagine in those moments where, sure, there's maybe some bitterness that's trying to creep into your life or you, you have unanswered questions and you're not sure why this has happened to you, those are moments of crying out to God. Those are moments of saying, Lord, speak to me, help me, keep me next to you so that I don't reject you. I'm sure all of those things were going on in Lazarus's life on a day in and day out basis. Temporary appearances would suggest that the rich man had it all without faith and that Lazarus's faith availed him absolutely nothing. But the good news is that there's four observations in this text, and we've only covered three. So we have a lesson. We know the audience includes us, and we see the example of these two men, one lacking faith, one with faith. What's the result? What is the outcome? Well, let's come back to the rich man. The rich man died, and notice what Luke writes, and was buried. He had a nice funeral. He, he, the, the money continued on to the funeral. Lazarus was probably removed when he died and thrown in a ditch somewhere, and somebody threw some dirt over him. But not the rich man. He was died, and he was buried to remind us of his great wealth. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, I'm going to say something that, that may, if you're paying close attention, may startle you, it may bother you, and you may think I'm out of my mind, but I, but I believe it to be true, and so let me explain. But the statement is this. The rich man was exactly where he wanted to be. The rich man was exactly where he wanted to be. I don't mean by that that he was not being tormented. I don't mean by that that he was having a good experience. He was in utter anguish. He wanted to be any place else but there, but his entire life had been spent saying it's all about me, it's not about anybody else, and it sure isn't about God. God, stay a million miles away from me. I am not a man of faith. I do not want a relationship with you. I don't want you to impact my life in any way possible. I have everything I need. I'm completely self-sufficient. The entire time misunderstanding the fact that God's grace had actually been extended to him for his life. Because many times over, he had the opportunity to see God for who he was. We're going to see that in a minute. Many times over, he had the opportunity to come to his spiritual senses and, senses and repent and cry out to God for mercy and grace in faith, and God would have saved him. And he would have been sitting right next to Abraham. But he didn't want to have anything to do with God. And when he died, God said, now you get what you want. And God withdrew his presence completely from the rich man. The presence that he didn't even realize all his life was there. And that, friends, is torment. That is anguish. That is hell. And that's where he ends up. He wanted nothing to do with God. He refused to live by faith. He was the center of his own universe. And even the mind-bendingness of his lack of love for Lazarus in this life actually carries over into the next. Look at verse 24. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and do what? Send Lazarus. Look at listen, the condescension in his voice. Send, send Lazarus, that sickly guy, right? To dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish, right? And then later on, I won't put it on the screen now, but later on he says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers, right? He's still all about himself. 
He refuses to bend the knee. He refuses to acknowledge that he is responsible for the place where he has found himself. And furthermore, he cannot claim ignorance. He can't say he didn't know. Look at verse 27 and following. He said, I beg you, Father, send them to my father's house, right? I have five brothers so he may warn them lest they also come into this place of turn, torment. Like, my brothers don't know this. They're, they're ignorant of this. And, 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 and he might be saying, and I was ignorant, but I don't want them to end up here. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them, right? He cannot claim ignorance. And notice how the rich man replies, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He doesn't say they don't have the law and the prophets. He doesn't say they don't have Moses and the prophets. He doesn't deny that he had Moses and the prophets. He says it's got to be more than that. It's got to be something supernatural. And Father Abraham says, that's not how it works. You have the message. You had the message and you rejected it. Now, what does the law say and what do the prophets say? Well, they say a lot. I'm going to read out of Deuteronomy and I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's too long, but then I'm going to read out of Isaiah. So Deuteronomy is, is Moses and the law and Isaiah is the prophets. I don't think it gets much clearer than this when it comes to allowing the love of God to flow through us into the lives of others through mercy and through kindness and not allowing ourselves to be lovers of money. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor and any of, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eyes look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because this for this, excuse me, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy to the poor in your land. It just doesn't get any clearer than that. But just in case you want a reinforcement, go to Isaiah 58. God is speaking. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bond of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless uh, poor into your home when you see the naked to cover him and not hide from your own flesh or your own kinsmen, your own fellow countrymen? So, so the rich man cannot claim ignorance. He can't say, God didn't do enough to tell me. Or Leon Morris puts it this way, which I think is absolutely a fabulous sentence. If a man, says Jesus, cannot be humane with the Old Testament in his hand and Lazarus on his doorstep, nothing, neither a visitant from the other world nor a revelation from the horrors of hell will teach him otherwise. The rich man made a decision of no faith, and such was the outcome of his life. Lazarus, on the other hand, had a faith that seemed foolish. And yet, as we read of the outcome of Lazarus' life, we read a couple of things in verse 23 and 25. So the, the, the rich man looks up and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Lazarus is now in a place of blessing. Lazarus is now in, in paradise. He is now receiving the object of his faith, which is eternal life. And Abraham reminds him, child, you remember in your lifetime, you received good things. And Lazarus and like men are bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Lazarus' faith seemed foolish. 
It seemed irrelevant to the casual observer, and yet it proves to be of the greatest value. And there's also a result, not just for the rich man, but also for, and, and Lazarus, but, but also there, there's something that impacts both of them in verse 26. Abraham reminds the rich man, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. What is Father Abraham telling us this morning? He's telling us that the choice of faith or the rejection of faith are fixed upon our death and cannot be altered. If you do not cry out to the Lord in this lifetime, you will have no other chance. If I do not put my faith in Jesus in this last lifetime, there is not another chance. Nobody's going to pray me out of purgatory. It is, it, that isn't biblical. It's not true. The facts are when I die, my, if I have faith in Christ, I am redeemed. And if I don't, I bear the burdens for my sin for the rest of eternity. The result is both startling and comforting and a somber warning. So how do we apply this text this morning. I have a couple thoughts on that. We'll wrap up. The first is this. Our temporal circumstances are not the entire story. You may be really well off this morning. You may have more money than you know what to do with and more houses and cars and vacation homes and all that kind of stuff. You may be sitting on the top of the world in your own mind, but if you have no faith, you are entirely poor spiritually. You are destitute and you are without hope. And if you're here this morning as a disciple of Jesus and you're in immense pain, and you're in, you're in great struggle and great turmoil, your faith is the richest thing you could possibly own. And that investment will pay off for all of eternity. Because my second observation here is that God is both merciful and just. He is merciful to those who cry out to him for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he extends salvation. He extends eternal salvation to all who call on him and acknowledge, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I don't deserve it, I can't earn it. But I trust that Christ did uh, on the cross for me, paying my sins so that I could have new life in him. And I, and I believe that and I trust in that. All right? God is merciful, but he's also just. If I refuse him, he will allow me to have that for which I ask. Therefore, struggling disciples, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Sometimes when you struggle, you think when you're, when, when you're feeling your worst, it's like this is never going to end. I'm never going to come out of this. All right? I think of, uh, of our colleague Andrew Brunson, 18 months in prison in Turkey with apparently no end in sight. I pray for him every day and I pray that the Lord would release him. But mostly I pray that, that God would make sure that he doesn't you know, struggle with his faith, that he knows that his father is, is with him even in that terrible place. And that for those who may be here this morning as unbelievers, you, you haven't put your faith in Christ. Maybe you've never heard it. Maybe this is the first time you've, you've ever heard it. And you've simply been ignorant to the information. Not ignorant, you're stupid, but just you, you didn't have the information. This morning is an opportunity for you to receive the love of God in Christ. This morning is a chance for you to say, I, man, I've been living for the wrong stuff, right? I, 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 I understand that what I truly believe has led me to choose a way of live that is not spiritually healthy for me or, or good for me in any way, according to God. And I want to come to Christ for salvation. This is your moment to understand that temporal wealth and comfort are just that, and they do not last into eternity. But it is not too too late to put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this, uh, this word. It is somber. It is challenging. But I pray that you would uh, put it to work in our hearts. 
So I want to just have a moment of silent prayer uh, for you to, to pray and just talk to the Lord. Maybe this is your first time and you're praying that, that he would bring you forgiveness and grace and mercy through Christ. And it may be that you're praying that he would uh, help you uh, sustain your faith in the struggle. Uh, or maybe you want to pray for some others that you know don't know him or are struggling right now. But let me just offer a moment of silent prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your goodness and kindness that shares this story with us this morning. Thank you that you, you don't leave us in the dark. You don't uh, allow our sin to, to win out. But you offer grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can celebrate with him, so that we can rejoice that the somber reminder actually leads us to thankful hearts and, and singing and celebratory because we know that you will get us home. Uh, but Father, I, I pray that no one would leave this room without embracing uh, the truth of your grace and your mercy, but also of your justice, of your complete consistency to your word. Father, I pray for uh, disciples in this church or those that we know that are struggling right now, that uh, you would make their faith deeper and richer and stronger, uh, that you would be glorified and, and that they would fix their eyes on you knowing that you will bring them home. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.